Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. I will be reading from Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Around twice a year, uh, we have slated to be able to show some World Video Bible School videos to you. Uh, we have not done that in some time, I think, just because of our busyness of schedule. We're kind of behind on that. So that's what we want to do tonight. But first, I want to talk to you a little bit about World Video Bible School, and then we'll have this lesson that we'll see, and then Glenn will extend the invitation to us at that time. So you can go to video.wvbs.org, and you can access 2,500 videos. It's extensive. I mean, there's so much information. Uh, it's directed by Rudy Kane, and I talked to, to him from time to time, and it's just so many people have been brought to Christ. Some people on elevator have been handed a card like this, went home, looked at some of the videos, began to study, and then called back and said, hey, you know, I'd like to be baptized into Christ. And so uh, they do a world of good. We have passed out around 4,000 of these in the last four years. And so I hope that you'll take these, uh, take them home. You can leave them at a doctor's office, at a bank, at the dry cleaners, wherever you go. Uh, hand them to a friend at work, a co-worker. So uh, this is just it's a great, great tool. So GBN is a great ministry, and it's primarily a Internet streaming and a cable uh, media-based ministry, and it does so good. I mean, it's just top tier is what I would call it. Production is so great. And uh, World Video Bible School, uh, I know they, they collaborate, the two of these uh, ministries collaborate sometimes, but they're, I'd say, a top-tier online ministry. And what they do is they produce videos, lots of videos. And sometimes some people from AP, uh, I was on a plane one time coming from someplace, uh, I was out of the country, and I think we landed in Dallas, and, and there Kyle Butt was on the plane. I said, Kyle... What you doing? He told me, he said, I just was recording some of these lessons for a World Video Bible School. So they do just such a great job uh, about these. I know Glenn has done several. And so if you have not, please go and just look at these and the quality. So it, it really is a tool for those who have never heard about Christ. Uh, many have been baptized, as I mentioned. Uh, they have the series Searching for the Truth. And I can't remember, Nathan Anderson, if it was you or David Hester, but uh, we had several of those that we had purchased, and we went uh, to the apartments. I think this was in the old building, and we handed out hundreds of these. And, and so they're so good for this. Uh, also, the proof for the existence of God. There's several uh, video series about that. Uh, the validity for a worldwide flood. And uh, anyway, so, so those kinds of things are for people who are looking and searching and asking, and they're great. But sometimes what is overlooked is that uh, World Video Bible School also can help a Christian in their knowledge. 
We live in a time and an era that there is no excuse for biblical ignorance. You know that? There really isn't. It's at our fingertips. It's everywhere. And this is a great resource. If you want to grow in Christ and you want to continue to mature, uh, this would be a great place to go. And so I hope that you'll look at that and then see some ways that uh, you can. Also, those who are struggling with anxiety and fear and loneliness and relationships, it's also a great tool. They have lots of series about these sorts of things. But tonight what we're going to be doing, we're looking at the second category, and that is simply growing deeper in the study of God's Word. And so Neil Pollard and Hiram Kemp will be doing a series tonight. It's called The Light of the World. It's a series. They probably have... I don't know, probably 50 different lessons. It's called the Light of the World series. And this one tonight that we'll be looking at is what is Jesus doing now? Have you ever thought about that? What is Jesus doing now? We know what he did when he came on earth, but what is he doing for the saints right now? So we're going to look at that, and then afterwards, uh, Glenn will offer the invitation. Who's the busiest person that you know? Maybe they work several jobs, have various responsibilities, have their hands in several different projects, and at times they may feel overwhelmed. But nobody's any busier than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior. And yet he's never overwhelmed. He's never in over his head. He was active on earth, and he's active in heaven. Let's study together on what Jesus is doing right now. It has been said that the Bible, when you look at it from a historical standpoint, is his story. It's the story of Jesus, that Jesus is to be found on every page of the Bible. I believe that's true. When we come to look at Jesus, we come to examine who he is, something about his character and his nature. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, for example, the Bible tells us that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus has always been. He is, as uh, God the Son, the second personality of the Godhead, deity, and has always been. And then the Gospels uh, especially show us that Jesus did come in the flesh. And we read about his earthly ministry and the sinless life that he lived, the, the vicarious death, the death in our place that he died, his burial, his resurrection, and his return to heaven. But Hiram, what about now? Maybe that's something we don't think about very much, is what is Jesus doing right now? That's right. You know, we can read the Bible, and we can see Jesus active, and you know what they say, out of sight, out of mind. And you get to Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, and Jesus ascends back to heaven, and you've got the apostles looking and gazing into heaven, and we can think that that's pretty much it from that point forward. The Holy Spirit becomes active in the ministry of the apostles and then in the inspiration of the Bible and that sort of thing, and we might view Jesus' mission as complete. But as you make your way through the New Testament, you see that Jesus is still very active. He makes some appearances to people like Stephen in Acts chapter 7 or Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9 and in Acts chapter 18 and in other areas throughout the New Testament. But more than that, in the book of Hebrews, it deals primarily with what we might call Jesus's heavenly ministry and what Jesus is doing right now. You remember the book of Hebrews is written to second generation Christians who seem to be struggling with their faith and staying close to Jesus and their temptation to go back to Old Testament Judaism. And the writer says over and over again that you have it better now in Jesus than at any other time. And if you leave Jesus, you've left the best. And he goes back and forth between two ideas in the book. 
one of what Jesus has done and then also what Jesus is doing. And he shows us that Jesus, the Jesus that lived in first century Palestine, the Jesus that was preexistent with God from eternity's past is the same Jesus that is living and active, though in heaven today. Well, it sounds like a people who could benefit from understanding what was currently going on in their lifetimes. And now 2,000 years later, if anything, that question is amplified uh, because it's been so long since he was here. So if we walk through, sounds like as we survey the book of Hebrews, there are several things that we learn about what Jesus is doing now. So let's, I suppose we're going to be taking this kind of as we walk through the book. What's the first thing? that the writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is doing right now. You open up the book to Hebrews chapter 1, and it starts out sort of in sermonic form. It doesn't have the normal epistolary greeting, but he says that God in various times in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, but now he speaks through his son. And then in verse 3, he talks about the son's activity, and he says the son is the brightness of God's glory and the exact imprint or expression of his nature, who when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so the first thing Jesus is doing, according to the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter one and verse three, is that he's seated at the right hand of God. And this terminology of seated at the right hand of God, it says something about Jesus's reign at the present moment. It means that he's near to God, that he's close to God, but it also drives at the fact that he's co-equal with God in this position at God's right hand. Well, it, it seems to me I've heard from people who will often say things like that Jesus is going to reign in the future, that he's not currently doing so right now, and will even say that that reign is going to be on this earth. But, but the Hebrews writer there seems to indicate this is happening in, in heaven, and it's happening already. That's right. And what the Hebrew writer articulates in chapter one is what Christians were saying immediately after Jesus's ascension. You think about the first time the gospel was preached in Acts chapter two, and you've got Peter there and Peter is preaching this sermon and he talks about Jesus's role and his his position in relation to King David. And he says, David, he is in his grave. But Jesus, he rose from the dead and he's ascended and he's seated at the right hand of God. And then he quotes from Psalm 110 and verse one, the verse that's Mm -hmm. used most often in the New Testament, the Old Testament verse that's quoted more often than any other passage in the New Testament. And it talks about Jesus sitting at God's right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool for his feet and that exalted position. In first Corinthians 15, Paul picks up on this and says he must reign until he's put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And so Jesus' reign is not future. It's active right now. Well, unless we don't know how long the earth will stand, but for, for however long that it does, Jesus is going to continue to reign at the right hand of the Father until the end. You know, I think that has to have a lot of comfort and reassurance for people, right? It does. It says that Jesus is in total control no matter what. And Hebrews 1 and verse 3 says he upholds the world by his very power. You think Colossians 1, 17, it says in those verses before that he created all things and all things were created for him. But then Colossians 1, 17 says in him all things hold together or some older translations say in him all things consist. But Jesus has all things under his control and being at God's right hand in the Bible, just like today, if you've got a best friend, somebody will say, well, this is my right hand man. 
And we'll say that to suggest the closeness with which individuals associate themselves. The same thing's true in the Bible. The right hand was used for blessing. You think about Genesis 47, 18 mm-hmm. through 20, when Jacob blessed his boys. Or in Isaiah 62 in verse 8, it talks about swearing with the right hand. Or even John, in his trepidation, he fell before Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 when he saw Jesus in this exalted state as he shone this amazing vision and apocalyptic revelation. And it says Jesus comforted him with the right hand in Revelation 1.17. When the Bible says Jesus is at the right hand of God, he's close enough to the Father to have an impact for us in our lives mm. and to do several other things. And so this idea of him being there says he reigns, he's co-equal with God, and he's near to God for our benefit and on our behalf. You know, I think there's a lot of people who aren't aware uh, of that particular fact. And, and what's incredible to me is We've not gotten out of the preamble of the, of the letter, and we've already learned this very important thing that Jesus is doing for us. So beautiful, this idea that he's, he's advocating, and he's right there for our benefit next to the Father. Now, as we look on through the letter, and we get to the next chapter as it's divided for us, seems like there's something else that we might see that he's doing for us right now. That's right. In Hebrews chapter 2, the writer sort of switches gears and he says in Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus identifies with us and that Jesus is near to us. And he goes through several ways in which this is evident. Some of them talking about what Jesus did in his earthly ministry. He tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2 and verse 9. He's the captain of our salvation through his suffering. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 10 and 11. But then in verse 12, he says, and he quotes from Psalm 22 in verse 22, and he's talking about what Jesus is doing now. And he says, says, I will not be ashamed to be called their brothers. In the midst of the church will I sing praises. And in Hebrews 2 and verse 12, this depicts Jesus. He's at the right hand of God. But then the Hebrew writer says, when his people sing, when Christians sing praises to God, Jesus sings with us. And, and if you think about just the contrast that's happened in that short period of time, in my mind's eyes, I'm listening to you. In chapter 1, you have Jesus in such close proximity to the Father in heaven And meanwhile, here, as we assemble together in worship, he's in our midst worshiping with us. This this beautiful picture of the, the bridge that Jesus is between humanity and deity. That's right. You know, throughout the Old Testament, God is said to be near his people and close to him. Near the end of the Old Testament in Zephaniah chapter three, it talks about when God's people come back after they've straightened up their act and God's forgiven them, he will rejoice over you and exult over you with joy. And then Zephaniah 317 says he'll exult over you with singing and that God sings. And then you get to the New Testament. And here we see that God, the son sings. Now, before Jesus died, he was observing the Passover with his disciples and instituting the Lord's Supper. And he said in Matthew 26 and verse 28, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in verse 29, speaking about the Lord's Supper, he says, but I will not again drink of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And so he was saying about the supper that he would partake of it again with his apostles, but he wouldn't do it until the church age in the father's kingdom. But the problem, of course, is Jesus was not on earth again when the church was established in Acts 2 forward. And so when did Jesus do that? Well, he does it with us as he's in our presence when we worship God and he is there as we worship him. And Hebrews 2 and verse 12 says he sings with us as well. You know, one of the most misunderstood things about worship, I believe, is the function that singing plays in our worship. In Ephesians 5, 19 and Colossians 3 and verse 16, you have uh, the, the dimension of that 
act of worship that we're speaking to one another, that we're singing to one another. It's an audible, out loud thing that we're doing for one another. And though we can't hear him, it's it's incredibly mind-blowing to think that Jesus is in our midst. He is singing. And that says something about maybe how we ought to think about our participation in the worship service itself. That's right. If God has his mouth open, if Jesus has his mouth open in song, and he's the object of our worship, we worship him. You know, you think about Matthew 28 and verse 17, people saw Jesus and they fell down and they worshiped him. Or Matthew 8, on the ship, the disciples fall down and worship him, and he never refused worship. If he's the object of our worship, and yet he joins in in singing with us, it's all the more encouragement for us to sing as well. It should change the way that we view worship. You just think about Jesus being involved this ought to encourage us. You think about sports and people that have said, you know what, he's a, he's a player's coach. He gets on our level. He may run wind sprints with us. Or you work in a company and the boss comes in on occasion and gets his hands dirty and gets involved with the other employees. It says, hey, I'm not too good to actually be involved and work alongside you. The reality is Jesus is better than us. There is an infinite gap between his character and ours. Hebrews 7.26 says he's holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners. Mm. And yet he's willing to sing with us. When Jesus was on earth, In Matthew 26 and verse 30, right after he says that about the Lord's Supper, it says he went out with his disciples. And when they went out, after they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And you can read that verse and think to yourself, I wish I had been there. How does my Savior sing? But then the Hebrew writer says, though we weren't with them in the flesh, we don't miss out. We get what they received and what begins on earth will continue in heaven as we'll join in with him in the heavenly chorus and sing praises to him. And so it encourages us to worship God. Jesus is not, he's in heaven at God's right hand, but he's not silent. He's singing with his people. Well, we ought to think about that the next time we're in worship. The, the, the largest argument, it seems, or at least the longest in the, in the letter, is what happens next in Hebrews chapter 3, that Jesus is better. There are a lot of different reasons that are given, but it seems like that that longest reason given is another thing that Jesus is doing right now for us in heaven. That's right. And it's, he's serving as our high priest. Right. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1, the Hebrew writer says that Jesus is the author of our salvation. He says he's the apostle and the high priest of our confession. Now, what is a high priest? A high priest is an Old Testament position that was occupied by those from the tribe of Levi. And this would be the person. There were many priests, but the high priest had the privilege of going into God's tabernacle or temple and offering up sacrifices on the Day of Atonement and communicating with God on behalf of the people through those sacrifices and doing unique and special things. But the Hebrew writer says that Jesus is serving right now as our high priest in a unique way and that we're blessed to have him represent us in heaven as our high priest and he serves in that role for our benefit. Yes, yeah, so you think about the, the example that he's using there in Psalm 110 of this obscure character, Melchizedek, who had no forerunner or successor to serve in that capacity. It's another one of those statements like Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, that as long as time uh, stands, the first century Christians, their high priest is our high priest. If the world stands 500 more years those Christians are going to have the same high priest we do. That's right. And the the argument that the Hebrew writer makes, especially in chapter 7, 
he says that Jesus would have to wait until he got to heaven to exercise this role because he sprung from the tribe of Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing about becoming a priest or about Mm -hmm. priesthood. And so while Jesus was on earth, he couldn't be a high priest because the old law says only those from the tribe of Levi. But now in heaven, as our heavenly high priest, he's in the perfect position. And several times sprinkled throughout the book of Hebrews, the writer not only mentions that Jesus is our high priest, but he lays alongside that a benefit that we derive. For example, in chapter four, he'll say, Jesus is the high priest of our faith and our confession. And we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with us. He was in all points tempted like we are yet without sin. And so it allows us to boldly come to the throne of grace. Jesus knows what it's like if I'm struggling with my anger, with my attitude, not because he necessarily struggled with those things. Jesus committed no sin, but he knows what it's like to be a human on earth and to overcome temptation and face the devil. And as our high priest, who both is the sacrifice that is offered, but who's also offering up the sacrifice, he's on our side. Or Hebrews chapter 10, it says Jesus is our high priest. And because of that, we should draw near with a true heart to God. He's the one that's our go-between and his sacrifice appeases the wrath of God. And he's our representative. Well, then he talks about how it gives us full assurance of faith. He contrasts just a little earlier, I believe in chapter seven, the high priest under the old law that they could be sympathetic because they had a sin problem themselves and they are offering for themselves as well as for the people a sacrifice for sin. But this high priest who is working for us in heaven right now is one who has the sympathy without the sin problem. And that's incredible. That is. Jesus is serving as a high priest again for our benefit and not for his. He's the go-between and he's the one that can get us into God's presence through his sacrifice and also be there to represent us in heaven. Well, this is an exciting study, and, and there's so much more that I think we realize what Jesus is doing uh, for us right now. So all about in chapter four? Is there anything said there about what Jesus is currently doing? You get to Hebrews chapter four and verse 12, and there's this statement made in verse 12 about the word of God being alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's one of the more famous statements in the book as it speaks about the way Jesus operates in our lives and the way his word impacts us. But then in verse 13, it says, all things are naked and open before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so in verse 13 of chapter four, we learn another thing about what Jesus is doing right now, and that is he's observing humanity. Throughout the Bible, it talks about God's observation of human, human activity. Second Chronicles 16, 9 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give account of how individuals live. Or the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. And I love that because it says Jesus is watching us not to necessarily catch us doing something wrong and to sort of pin us down and send us to hell, but he observes the good as well. And so if I'm doing the right thing, though it may go unnoticed and unappreciated by humans, Jesus looks down and he sees it. All things are open before his sight. And on the other hand, if I'm misbehaving, if I'm living contrary to the will of God, it won't escape his notice. We may get by in this life, but we won't get away because all things are open before him. Right. I remember being a little boy in, in church, and there was a song, uh, sometimes it's still sung, uh, there's an all-seeing eye watching you. I mean, I remember being like four or five, and the idea that uh, was watching you, you know, every day mind the course that you pursue. And maybe in, in a more infantile state of faith, it was a more scary thought. But the longer that we live and the longer we walk with our, our Lord, the more encouraging and reassuring it is that he sees, he knows, he understands, and he cares about what we're going through. 
That's right. Just think about this from two vantage points in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen is preaching, and there have been some enemies that have lied on him and misrepresented him, and they gnash with their teeth. They become so angry that they throw rocks at Stephen until he dies. Mm -hmm. As they're stoning Stephen, Stephen cries out for forgiveness on their behalf, and he looks up and he sees Jesus. Jesus, as we mentioned before, is at the right hand of God, but not sitting. This time he's standing. He looks down and he observes it. He sees Stephen's faithfulness, Stephen's courage, Stephen's conviction, and obviously Stephen is rewarded as a result of that. Two chapters over, though, he encounters Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 9, and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And in alarm and surprise, Saul says, who are you, Lord? Saul didn't realize Jesus saw everything he was doing as if he had it recorded on footage, but... Jesus was observing. He saw Stephen's faithfulness and Saul's persecution and animosity toward his people. He observed both things. It says to us, if we're doing the right thing, don't grow weary in well-doing, 2 Thessalonians 3.13. If we're engaged in wickedness, now's the time to stop and turn around because in the judgment, we won't have to brief him on what we've done. We won't have to explain ourselves to him. He's watching us right now and observing everything that we're doing. He looks on the human heart, 1 Samuel 16.7. And Jesus in heaven is looking at what we're doing. So he can both challenge and encourage us at the same time. If we look on down in that letter in chapter 5, uh, also containing some very well-known uh, thoughts there, what else is Jesus doing for us today? And this is one that a lot of people know Jesus for. But the way the Hebrew writer puts it, he says, Though Jesus was a son, he learned obedience by what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Jesus right now is saving. Jesus has always saved. When he was on earth, Jesus could forgive sins, but right at this moment, meaning every time somebody becomes a Christian, Jesus is pronouncing them pardoned and Jesus is saving. It's what he said he came to do in Luke 19 and verse 10. The son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And we might read that and say, well, Jesus isn't here now. But though Jesus has gone back to heaven, proximity makes no difference. He's not hindered or hampered in any way from saving, though he's in heaven, because the Hebrew writer says he's saving even now those that obey him. Okay, so somebody might say in in light of that, how is he saving today? You know, what, like in in Titus chapter 3, what is Paul telling us that can help us Because there's no more important question to answer than that one. That's exactly right. As the gospel is preached, it's the message about Jesus. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. As the message of Jesus is received and we respond to it, as Paul mentions in Titus 3, he talks about the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And according to his own mercy, he saves us. Jesus saves us by his blood when we obey the gospel, turn our lives over to him, and he can wash away our sins even though he's not present. 1 Timothy 4 and verse 10 Mm. says that he's the savior of all men, especially of those that believe. You think about the gospels and how Jesus healed people. And sometimes Jesus was really focused in doing this and he was intentional about putting his hands on people and touching them. But at other times, people would come up to Jesus and say, I know you can do this. You don't have to be there. Just say the word. The centurion in Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 13, he says, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus would speak the word or in John chapter 4 with the nobleman's son. And that very moment, an individual was healed. The same thing's true about his ability to save. Though Jesus is not present, as we obey the gospel, we contact that blood by faith. Jesus washes away all our sins, and it is just as good as if Jesus was standing right next to us today saying, son or daughter, your sins are forgiven, and he saves. You know, all of this just affirms how much God cares. Um, 
and, and there's so many times in life where because of either our weakness or what we're going through, that that's a reminder that we need. And the book of Hebrews is giving us that. It seems like as we work our way down through the letter, that that's made in a more direct way and something else that Jesus is doing for us right now. That's right. You skip over chapter six just for time's sake and you get to chapter seven. And it's saying that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he's living right now to make intercession. One of the things that Jesus is doing right now is he's interceding for us. Now, intercession is this idea of speaking up on our behalf to God. Jesus is talking up for us before God so that we might realize that there's somebody on our side. There's somebody in our corner that really has our best interests at heart. And that's what Jesus is doing for us. In Romans 8, Paul says that Jesus was raised from the dead. Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It's God that justifies. Who condemns? Christ died. He's the one that rose from the dead and is at the right hand of God making intercession for us right now. We say, I think about how much of a struggle day-by-day life is and who would be laying something to the charge of God's elect? Who, who is Jesus helping us uh, in, uh, who is an adversary to us? You think about the devil. He's called our adversary, the devil. In First Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, he's the enemy, the accuser of the brethren, Revelation right. 12 and verse 9. But sometimes it's not just the devil. Sometimes it's ourselves. Mm-hmm. And First John 3 and verse 20 says, if our hearts condemn us, if we say, well, I don't feel saved. I, don't, I know God says if I become a Christian and after that I make mistakes and I petition him for his forgiveness, I'll receive it. But I don't really feel forgiven. The Bible says God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. And Jesus is in heaven saying, things about us in the positive. He's not telling God to make it harder on us or make it more difficult to please him. He's interceding, which is always used. That word intercession is always used in the New Testament in the positive to say that Jesus is doing this for our benefit, speaking up to God on our behalf and providing everything we need, as the Hebrew writer says, so that we can have this abundant salvation. He saves completely or to the uttermost. Well, and and what I love is is the the motivation that the Bible gives us for why he wants to do that. Right after your statement in Romans eight thirty three and 34, from 35 to, to the end of the chapter in verse 39, we understand why he does that. You know, uh, who can separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness or peril or sword? You know, and, and he says through, we were made more than conquerors through him that loved us. Him who loved us and is interceding for us, Hebrews writer would tell us. We really need Jesus to speak up for us in heaven. And because he lived on earth and he knows what it's like to be a human being, when he's talking up for us in heaven, he's speaking from experience, but he also is God. And so he realizes God's mandate on holiness and he's the sacrifice and we couldn't be in a better situation. Well, this is an overwhelming study, but there, I mean, we're so reassured, but, but there's even more, isn't there? Is there anything else that he's doing for us right now? That's right. At the end of the book in chapter 13 in verses 5 and 6, the Hebrew writer assures us that God abides with us. He says, let your heart be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, that we can boldly say the Lord's my helper. I won't fear. What can man do to me? Jesus is ever present with us even now. This is impressive because you read throughout the Bible of Jesus saying, I'm with you always to the end of the age or nothing can separate us from the love of God. You were mentioned in Romans chapter eight in the realization that we don't have to do life alone. That though he was present with the 12 in his earthly ministry, he's present with the innumerable amount of Christians throughout the world who've been faithful to him and who are doing his will. And he's with us right now. And that's what the Hebrew writer says. 
we don't have to fear. We can look at the harsh realities of life. We can walk through the valleys of life. And in the spirit of the psalmist, we can say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, not because there's no evil present, but because you're with me. And that's what we need. We need Jesus's presence in our midst every day. And the Bible says we have it. Well, it speaks to something that he's and only he is capable of, something that we're not. In our own finiteness, we need this understanding of the infinite Jesus. There's what he did while he was here, but there's also what he's doing right now. Even though he is in heaven, he's still active. He's still observing what's going on in our lives. He knows it to its details, and he's also so involved. He's involved when we're at worship. He's involved in seeing everything that's going on in our life. He's involved in our world. He didn't step away. And that, if we're not right, that should make us concerned and to make the changes that we need to. But as we walk in the light of Christ, it should be a source of comfort and joy to us. Wasn't that wonderful? I mean, every word of it. Uh, and Neil and Hiram are great guys. I know that Hiram has been here. I can't remember. I think Neil Hazard is coming. Uh, I would mention, incidentally, that, that these guys are, uh, they speak a great deal at polishing the pulpit. And so that might be an encouragement for you to go and be part of that, too. They, uh, they're both preaching in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And just to note, they're preaching for the same congregation, which is kind of a novel thing that they're doing. And it's been going on for, I don't know, two or three years now, I guess. But uh, both of them are preachers for this congregation, and they alternate services, worship, and in their preaching. And that gives them the opportunity to travel more and to preach in other congregations at the same time. And so it just seems to be working beautifully, and they're wonderful men. What we wrestle with more than the fact that Jesus cares about us is his omniscience. We, we can't grasp it. That, that he would know me in view of the vastness of people on the earth right now. How, how is it possible that he could, I mean that he could know that I even exist, much less know my name, much less know what's going on in my life. How is that even conceivable? That's that's omniscience. That's that's God. And when you read Revelation 1, 2, and 3, you have seven churches of Asia, and it's kind of a report card for each one. Here's what you're doing well, here's what you're not. It's great for us because we can compare ourselves to it and, and do better. But in each case... You have these words. Ready for this? I know your works. I know your works. I mentioned this morning in John chapter 4 about the woman at the well. And Jesus said, no, you're not not married. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. The one with whom you're living now is not your husband. She was just shocked. But I can assure you she was open to what he had to say because man, just simple man can't do this. He's omniscient. He knows what... People do not know. So it's very practical. It's practical for my life right now. Jesus is active from heaven. That's not all. Jesus knows everything about me. Is that a is that a fear to you or a comfort? Which? And I, I I would like to think that all of us would answer it's a comfort. Even even 
though we're painfully aware of our own weaknesses and sins, we are, but that, but that he knows I love him and he knows that I'm striving to please him. And if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we always want to end our services by, by asking this question. Would you like to obey the gospel? And can we help you do that? Would you like to study the Bible some more? Would you like to be baptized tonight? How can we help you? In view of the fact and this great impression that this lesson has left on us, that Jesus knows me and he cares. And he knows that if if I'm living for him or not living for him right now. And if I'm not, I need to fix that. And you can repent of your sins and confess him and be baptized tonight. The Bible says it's into Christ. You reckon he knows when people do that? Well, there's no question about that. This, This lesson has, from Hebrews has well developed that. If you are in need of the prayers of the Christians tonight, you know that we'll stop what we're doing and we will offer pray to God, prayer to God on your behalf. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, Send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.